Good morning, church. Uh, Let me just pray for us again before we encounter God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that as scripture tells us, your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And so I, I pray, Father, this morning that your word would pierce our hearts, that it would draw us closer into relationship and into life with you, Jesus. And may we experience the hope and flourishing you bring as we walk life intimately connected with you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2013, in Palm Springs, California, uh, some officers were dispatched to the Motel 6 there uh, because a man was found uh, unconscious and unresponsive. So the hotel staff, of course, they're a little panicked and they're trying to figure out who is this guy? Why is he not responding? How did he end up unconscious on the floor of his room? And so the officers are um, told to rush over there. And when the officers arrive, they find actually this man is awake again and functioning. Only the, the hotel staff are having a hard time communicating. They're, they're trying to ask him questions and he's not understanding and he's communicating back in a language that they don't understand. And the hotel staff are befuddled because, that's a funny word, huh? <laughs> befuddled. Never used that word, but there it is. Uh, <laughs> they're concerned because they're like, yesterday when he checked in, he spoke flawless English. He's a U.S. citizen. Uh, the, the police discovered four forms of identification, one of which was a U.S. passport, born and raised in the United States, spoke English yesterday. Today, he does not understand a word of it. And they're confused and everyone's lost trying to figure out what he is and so, or who he is. The police search his bag and they find a couple tennis rackets, some gym clothes, and they find four forms of identification indicating that this man is Michael Boatwright, a 61-year-old United States citizen. Fast forward a little bit. Uh, he's actually diagnosed with transient global amnesia. And when he woke up from what must have been a moment of head trauma, uh, Michael Boatwright thought he was Johan Eck and was only speaking Swedish and had seemingly lost the ability to understand English. Now, he had traveled to Sweden several times between 2008 and 2013, but whatever this head trauma did, it caused him to lose the ability to understand English. And actually, uh, about a year later, Michael Boatwright, a.k.a. Johan Eck, moved to Sweden where he became a private tennis coach. Right? Because he stepped into, with, with this head trauma, into this new identity, no longer who he was, but stepped into this new life as a new person. And, and I think that illustrates for us this reality that who we are influences how we live. Your sense of identity, my sense of identity influences how we live, how we navigate life. And so what happened is when his sense of identity changed, the way that he approached life changed. He decided he would be a better fit living life in Sweden, and so that's where he moved. Now, I tell you that to say this. I think, church, for some of us, we have developed spiritual amnesia. We have forgotten the truth and the depth and the richness and the beauty of who God declares us to be. So I want to push into this key question. Who are we and how should we live? And and I want to suggest to you that in 1 John chapter 3, this is precisely what John is going to unfold for us. He begins with a declarative statement about who we are, and then he's going to flesh out for us how we should live in light of that identity. Now, you heard Pastor Steve talk about the beginning of this last week, and I want to recap just briefly one of the passages that he read. This is 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, where John says this. He says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. And so right away in 1 John chapter 3, John makes this declarative statement. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished And that word lavish means to be poured out abundantly, excessively, over the top. 
And, and notice how when John fleshes this out, in the NIV it says see. Uh, some other translations it says behold. And it's this moment where John stops and he goes, take a look at this, right? He, he pauses the letter, says, behold, see, take note, pause. What's about to come is really, really important. And then he makes this statement, God has lavished his love on us and we are his children, comma. And then he makes this other statement, and that is what we are. It's as if John wants to drive home this truth and this reality that you and I are children of God. And what John wants for us is to remain rooted in our identity, that you and I are beloved children. And when we remain rooted in that identity, what we recognize is that children look like the father because the life of the father is in them. And John will spend the rest of chapter three fleshing out for us this idea of what does it mean to live in light of our identity as God's children. But but it's almost like John recognizes that for some of us, we're going to have a hard time grasping this. For some of us, we're going to go, ah, I don't know if I can really be a child of God. Do you know my past? Do you know what I've done? God's got to be ashamed of me. I remember this moment uh, as, as a kid. I was probably, I don't know, eight to ten-ish, somewhere in there. And it was me, my younger brother, and my cousin. And my, my grandparents who had a farm, they said, hey, why don't you guys come hang out on the farm? We'll, we'll do some fun things. And then uh, we played all day and they said, hey, let, let's go to lunch. So grandma and grandpa took us to McDonald's because where else do you take eight to 10 year old boys, but McDonald's. And so we go to get lunch. And within the first two minutes of walking in the door, my cousin and I set off the fire alarm, one of those escape doors. So now the whole restaurant explodes in chaos. People are like, is there a fire? Do I need to leave? My burger's getting cold. I would really like my fries. What do we do? And so the manager goes into crisis mode and he's trying to shut down the alarm and, and, and we finally get it shut down. We get our food and my grandpa's like, we're going to eat outside on the patio. So we go outside on the patio and my cousin and I, because we're eight-year-old boys, we start chucking pine cones over the fence in the parking lot of McDonald's to which the neighbor pops over the fence and goes, hey, who's throwing pine cones in my yard? And he looks at, uh, obviously, the two boys who were there throwing pine cones. We look at each other. My grandpa at this time is walking to his car. He, he's left us. And, the, and this guy goes, hey, are those your kids? My grandpa goes, nope. <laughs> he was like, he's so embarrassed of our behavior. And technically, he wasn't wrong, right? We're not his kids. We're his grandkids. But I was like, man, like, disowned us already. But it's all in good fun, right? But it was this idea that, like, he was so embarrassed, like, I'm not going to be associated with him. And listen, church, for some of us, we've sort of projected some of those ideas onto God, right? We think, maybe God is so ashamed or embarrassed of me. Like, is God going to actually want to own me as one of his kids? And this is the word of John. He goes, behold, take note of this. What manner of the abundant, extravagant love of God that's been poured out on you that God says, if you're following Jesus, you're my child. And for John, this is, this is where everything changes. When our identity is rooted in Jesus Christ, the rest of our life begins to look different. So let's begin to flesh this out. How do we live in light of our identity as God's beloved children? First John chapter three, verse four. It says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God's will 
will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. So how do we live in light of our identity as God's children? The first thing that John calls the people to is this, is to reject sinful living. One of the first things that he says is, listen, if you are a child of God, you have to leave behind your old way of living. John says it this way. He says, everyone who sin breaks the law. He says, in fact, sin is lawlessness. Now, when he describes sin as lawlessness, he's not just saying that they broke the Old Testament law. He's not just saying that they violated God's rule book. No, when he describes sin as lawlessness, what John is describing is this disposition of rebellion. It's this disposition of chaos in which a person says, God, I see your word. I see how you've called us to live, but I'm going to instead choose my own way apart from your words, ways, and wisdom. So I want to suggest to you that for John, he describes sin as a rebellious rejection of God's words, ways, and wisdom. It's it's sort of this arrogance in life that says, I know what's best for me. I can choose to do with my life what I want. And and God's word, sure, it might be nice, but I'm not going to align my life to that. And what John says, he goes, if you are a child of God, you were called out of living that way of life that you used to have. You were called into a new way of living and being in which your life reflects the life and the character of the God of the universe. Why? Because his life is in us and we as children are to reflect the life of the father. And so what John is calling them out of is this place of rebelliousness, this place of sort of a chaotic way of living where I can choose to do whatever I want. And he's calling them into this new life that is aligned with the word and the way and the wisdom and the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, here's this biblical truth, right? We see it all over scripture. It's talked about in Romans how we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. In 1 John chapter 1, John says it this way. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. So let let me set this up for you. John recognizes that all of us have sinned, right? This, This is the message of the gospel, that without Jesus, we've all sinned. We've all been affected and influenced by sin. And our disposition apart from Jesus is towards sin, is towards rebellion against God. But what John is saying is this, if you are a believer, you have been adopted as the the child of God. And that is what you are, he says, because of the abundant, because of the lavish love of God, you are his child. So John says, leave behind that old way of living. Now, let, let me ask this question or answer this question. We could look at this and say, well, is John describing sinless perfection? Because that, that's impossible. That's not what John is saying. He recognizes that we're human, that we're going to have moments where we fall into sin. That's why in chapter one, he says, uh, my dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ. He says, there's going to be moments where we fall into sin, but Jesus Christ is advocating on our behalf for the forgiveness of the father. John says it this way. He says in verse six, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. What John is saying is this. His challenge to the believers is don't let continuous habitual sin run unchecked in your life. He's saying this pattern, this disposition of lawlessness where you say, forget you, Jesus. I'm going to do things my own way. He goes, no, no, no. Step outside of that way of living. Surrender your life to Jesus. There's going to be moments where you make mistakes, but trust that when you are walking with him, that Jesus is your advocate, but leave behind that old rebellious disposition and step into a life and a place and a disposition of surrender. 
So let me ask us this question that we can, you can think about and wrestle with and reflect on. Are there places of continual rebellion that you refuse to surrender to Jesus? Are, are there sort of strongholds of sin in your life where you've said, Jesus, you can have all of this stuff, but I want to hold on to this thing. I, I don't want to surrender this area of my life to you. I want to maintain control over this. And John goes, you have a beloved father who loves you, who has called you to surrender his, your full life into him, that you can experience the hope and the transformation that he brings. Don't let areas of habitual sin run unchecked in your life. Step out of that, John says, and into a new way of living. I think part of it for us, church, is we have to refuse to believe the lie that sin is not a big deal. I think culture would like to tell us this, right? That, I mean, you don't really have to live according to God's word. You can do whatever you want. It's not a big deal. And and, and we believe this lie that I can have like a little bit of sin in my life that I know is there and that I'm okay with, that I'm not really bringing to Jesus. I can have this thing, whether it's lust, whether it's anger, whether it's whatever, I can have this thing and it doesn't really affect anybody. It just impacts me. There's this quote, it's been attributed to to numerous people. Uh, It's sometimes been attributed to G.K. Chesterton. I don't know who, who said it, but I think it echoes truth. And the quote is this, sin always keeps us longer than we wanted to stay and always takes us farther than we wanted to go. And I think that's true. We let it in just a little bit and it takes us to a place where we go, how did I get here? Because we've bought into sort of the cultural lie that sin is not a big deal. John says it this way in verse 7. He says, Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. Now, when John says don't let anyone lead you astray, partially for him, he's addressing some false teachings in the context that he was a pastor in. There was a group of false teachers who were sort of the early philosophers of what would later be called Gnosticism. And the Gnostics said, you can discover the sort of deep spiritual truth and you can be internally a deep spiritual person who knows the deep things of the universe. And if that's the case, it doesn't matter how you live. Do whatever you want. Because the physical doesn't matter. It's only the spiritual. And you can be spiritual and still live like hell, basically is their thought process. And John's going, no, 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 no. He says, as a believer, you are called out of a sinful way of living to live in a way that you reflect the life and the character of God. He says, don't let anyone lead you astray. Don't let anyone tell you that a sinful disposition in which you reject the words, ways, wisdom, and truth of Jesus is not a big deal. John would tell you it's a really big deal. So we need to refuse to believe the lie that sin is not a big deal and recognize that sin is a big deal with big consequences. So here's the temptation maybe for some of us. We know the biggies, right? As as you read scripture, you know, we've got this list of, you know, we might murder, adultery, stealing, lying, right? There's this list of ones we go, those are are biggies. And, And I think there's this temptation when we've been walking in the church for a while that we sort of rationalize other sins that we think aren't as big a deal. So we let these other things sort of creep in and we go, well, it's not one of the biggies, so it doesn't really matter that much. Let let, let me draw your attention to how Paul says it in Ephesians 4, 31. There, Paul says it this way. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. And Paul in his list there, like he lists some that I wouldn't look at and necessarily say like, those are biggies. And what I think is so interesting is these ones that, that, that 
Paul lists in Ephesians 4, they're largely internal. I can be a person who has bitterness rooted in my heart and life, and you might have no idea. And so sometimes we can live with an attitude or a place of bitterness and think, well, it's not really affecting anybody. But even as we hear Jesus calling us to a place of forgiveness, we reject that because we want to live with this anger towards someone who's wronged us. So maybe you've been in church for a while, you've been walking with Jesus for a while, and you go, well, I've got the biggies handled. But let me ask you this question. Is there a place where you're rationalizing something in your life that you should be removing? Maybe you work in a really difficult work environment. Maybe you might even say that the environment's a little bit toxic. You have a manager, you have a boss, you have a coworker who's just really, really difficult. And as you think about your relationship with that person, right, there's this sort of like bitterness that even now sort of begins to take root in your stomach. Maybe on Sunday night, as you get ready to think about going to work on Monday morning, you can already feel yourself kind of getting anxious and getting angry and wondering like, what's my manager going to do this week? And maybe there's this place of bitterness that just begins to take root in your heart and life. And you find yourself bitter towards that boss who, and, and maybe they have legitimately mistreated you, but you've let bitterness grow. Maybe you grew up in a difficult family situation and you were raised in a way that was really difficult and your parents or a family member hurt or wounded or offended you deeply and there's this bitterness that has taken root in your heart and life and you see this bitterness coming out in the way that you treat people and you'd like to think it's not a big deal but maybe you've rationalized that bitterness. Then Paul says, get rid of rage and anger. And and I think it's interesting that he puts these two together because not all anger is bad, but when you couple bitterness, rage, and anger, anger becomes absolutely toxic and detrimental and destructive. Are, Are there places where out of that moment of bitterness or out of that place of bitterness where anger and rage comes rushing to the surface and you find yourself treating people with some rage and anger? How do you do when somebody pulls out in front of you in traffic? And we can say, well, I mean, that's, you know, I can't be responsible for what comes out of me in that moment. But listen, if bitterness is inside of you, rage and anger are always at the surface. They're ready to come out in moments of emotional weakness. Are there places where you have let rage and anger take root in your life? And maybe it's destroyed some relationships and it's affected your ability to be a redemptive influence in the life of somebody that God has called you to influence. Paul says, get rid of bitterness, rage and anger, and brawling. And this is the one who go, well, pastor, unless off the hook here, uh, it's not like I'm at Ray's Corner thrown down in bar fights, right? I'm not a brawler. Let me ask you this. Are, are you an argumentative person who loves to jump to a fight? A, a dear friend of mine Uh, This comes from his dad. He says, you don't have to show up to every fight you're invited to. Listen, some of y'all are showing up to fights you weren't even invited to. (laughs) You hear a fight in the next room, you're like, I'm there for it. Let's go. You want to rumble? 
And, and, and church, here's the thing. I see some of this taking place even in the body of Christ. In the last two to three years, I've watched this sort of bitterness, this sort of rage and anger kind of bubble up to the surface in the body of Christ. And I see at times people just mistreating others. And, and we want to sort of put labels on things. And we talk about those ignorant conservatives and those stupid liberals. And then we want to fight about political things. And it comes out in rage and anger and bitterness in ways that does anything but demonstrate the love and the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not even concerned about the gospel. We want to win our argument. And for some of us, you're not down at the bar brawling, but you're behind your keyboard on the internet arguing for all sorts of things. And you have become a sort of, I don't even know, crusader for things on the internet. And you find yourself arguing with strangers behind keyboards and saying and doing things that evidence bitterness and rage and anger. And listen, I'm not saying that we don't advocate for truth. Absolutely we do. The problem is so many times it comes out in a way that you might speak truth, but do it in a way that violates the same truth you're speaking. Does that make sense? Paul says, get rid of bitterness, rage and anger, brawling, slander. Oof. We don't like to call slander out. I mean, we can tame it down. It's maybe gossip. It's, I'm just telling the details to my coworker about what the manager did. You're never going to believe it. I was in this meeting and they, and you start to tear down their character. There's that person in your neighborhood that's like everybody knows like that person's kind of a little unhinged. And so you're over at your other neighbor's house and you're in the garage hanging out. You're like, do you see what they put in their backyard? And that person, and you start to tear down their character and it's slander. And we don't want to call it that. And yet Paul says, get rid of anger, rage, bitterness, and slander. And yet we love to just tear down the character of other people when they're not present. That's not on the list of biggies, but Paul says, you ought to get rid of it. Or or what about where Paul says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, slander and malice. See, malice is this idea that you see everything through a lens of offense. It doesn't just mean that you're treating people maliciously. Sometimes you assume that everything people do towards you is coming through a screen of offense. And so for some of you, there are people in your life, maybe it's that difficult manager, that even when they attempt to do something right or good for you, all you see it through is a lens of offense and that person can literally do no right by you. And you assume malice where there isn't any. And because you find yourself rooted and living in this place of bitterness, rage, and anger, and it begins to influence and sour and bring toxicity to a number of relationships. And Paul says, you should get rid of these things. And and I use these as a practical example of a a larger arena of sins that, that John addresses in broad. And what I want us to do is just wrestle with this idea. Are there things, again, that you have rationalized that Paul would tell us in Ephesians that we should be removing? And the biggies are easy to point out. And my concern is sometimes as believers that we let off ourselves off the hook for the ones that we go, well, that's not big a deal. Bitterness, rage, anger, malice, slander. John presses the point even further. And he makes a really hard statement. This is 1 John uh, 3, 8. He says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason Jesus appeared was, or the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Did you notice what he says? Let me, let me read the first part of that again. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil. What John tells us is that when we walk in sin, we participate in the work of the enemy, the devil. Like that, 
<laughs> that's not like every, this is not a passage that it's like as a preacher, like I really hope I get to preach that verse one day, right? To tell people, listen, if you were walking in sin, you were demonstrating the character of the enemy. You were demonstrating the character of the devil. But church, here's why we can't be led astray. Sin is a big deal. In, in the gospel of John, John chapter 10, verse 10, we're told this, that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? The work of the devil is to reduce the flourishing that God has called us to. He comes to undo the redemptive work of Jesus, to steal and kill and des destroy, and to undo the good work of Jesus. That is the enemy's purpose. And what we must recognize, according to John, is that when we are walking and living in places of blatant sin, where we're just letting it run unchecked in our life, whether it's one of the biggies or whether it's something like bitterness or rage or anger or malice or slander, where we are letting those things run unchecked, we are partnering with the devil and being a, a co-conspirator in the work of stealing, killing, and destroying that he seeks to do. Right? John doesn't mince any words here. And, and notice, by the way, all throughout, again in verse 7, he says, dear children. Right? He's writing to people that he loves and cares about. And he says, I love you guys. And he says, because I love you, I want to tell you, don't continue to walk down this pathway of letting these destructive, sinful patterns and practices run unchecked in your life. Because he says, you are a child of God. You've been called out of that way of living and you are called into a new life. And the truth that he gives him is in 1 John 3 verse 9. Let me read this for you. 1 John 3 9, he says, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. He says, you're not going to let those sinful patterns and practices run unchecked. You are going to confront them and you're going to repent of them. Why? He says, if you are a follower of God, God's seed resides in you. So he, here's the truth. No one who is a child of God will continue with sin unchecked in their life. Now, without getting too crass, I want to open up this verse a little bit. Where, where John says, no one who is born of God continues to sin because God's seed remains in him. That word seed is literally the Greek word spermata, where we get the word sperm from. He's using a biological metaphor, right? You I'm not going to give you the biology lesson. If you haven't had the talk, ask your parents. Call them this afternoon and say we didn't have a chat. But when the sperm and egg come together, new life is conceived, right? And, and that new life bears the DNA of both the mother and the father. And, and you reflect the life of your parents because their DNA resides in you. What John is saying is when you are born of God, the spiritual life of the father resides in you. John says it this way in chapter 3, verse 24. He says, the one who keeps God's command, walks in obedience, lives in him, in Jesus, and he lives in them. This is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. When you were born again, the Holy Spirit of God resides in you, and he convicts you and empowers you and aligns your life with the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus. And so where you begin to stray from the path of righteousness that God has called you to, you will sense the Spirit saying, no, don't do this. Don't give in to this. And in that moment of conviction, we have an opportunity in the grace and the empowering of Jesus to step into a new life and a new way of living that aligns with the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus. And this church is where we find hope in the redemptive work of Jesus because we can look at how sin has influenced us, impacted us. We see how sin has caused so much brokenness in the world and we could ask, where's the hope? And John brings so much hope in this passage. In chapter three, verse five, he says this. 
He says, but we know that he, Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. And the beautiful thing that we can recognize, church, is we don't have to handle the problem of sin on our own. What we recognize is that Jesus took on our sins and died on the cross, putting them to death, bringing victory over sin, bringing victory over death, that we can experience new life in Jesus. Likewise, in verse 8, John says this. He says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God came Now notice that's twice that John says, here's the reason why Jesus came. Here's the second reason. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I I love this reality. We see the effects of, in the brokenness of sin. We see it in, in places where people have mistreated us. We see it in where we've wounded others. We see it in addictions. We see it in broken marriages. We see it in broken families. We see it all over the place. And what John says is, listen, all that destruction of the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, the Son of God appeared. Jesus himself appeared to destroy the devil's work and to bring in a new and redeemed way of living in which there is hope and there is transformation and there is new life. So listen, that place in your life, maybe it's a place of addiction that you can't get free of, that that relationship that feels like it's falling apart. Maybe it's your marriage and you want reconciliation, but it seems like it can't happen and you feel like the enemy is at work. Trust that in those places, Jesus can bring hope and healing and redemption. He can destroy the work of the enemy. And for some of us, Though we're holding on to these destructive habits, patterns, and practices. We don't want to yield them to the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus because we assume we know better. And even now you sense the conviction of the Spirit saying, you got to let go of your bitterness. That rage and anger, let it give way to grace. That thing you're holding on to that prevents you from reconciliation, surrender and repentance. At the end of this passage, John gives us a picture, what I call evidence for what it looks like that we're living out the identity of of God's beloved. It's this in verse 10. He says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. Let, Let me say in the positive what John says in the negative there. What does it look like? What's the evidence that we're walking in the identity of God's children? It's this, we do what's right. To do what's right is to walk according to the words, ways, and wisdom of Jesus. It's to align your life with the truth of God. And John says, the other other evidence is this, that we love our brothers and sisters. And and I think you're going to see this next week as we continue in 1 John chapter 3. What John is calling us to is is a, a place of redemptive presence. Rather than walking in sin and doing the devil's work for him, John says, no, 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 step fully into this identity of God's beloved. Do what's right and be someone who loves your brothers and sisters because you are called to bear witness to the transformative, redemptive presence of Jesus Christ in all the spheres of influence that you have. Let me go back to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. That's what we should get rid of. Verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. And I love how in the book of Ephesians, Paul paints for us this picture of what redeemed living looks like. 
We're people with whom bitterness, rage, anger, malice, slander, brawling, those things have been dealt with in the grace of Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. And we're invited into new life where we can walk in the way of love. And listen, when I talk about walking in the way of love, so many of us want to go to a cultural definition of love that's just soft and tender and ooey-gooey. And we go, but where's where's the truth? Listen, church. The biblical definition of love is that it calls us into truth, into relationship with Jesus Christ. So I'm not saying we let ourselves get walked all over. I'm not saying that we don't have confrontation. I think we should, but it must be loving and it must be kind and compassionate. And so many of us, we want to walk out of bitterness, rage, and anger and make our point that way rather than saying, I want to offer forgiveness and be someone who's kind and compassionate, even as I'm unrelenting about the truth of the gospel. Because I think what John wants for us is to be a conduit, a means of God's grace in all the spheres of influence that we have as we live and walk out fully our identity as God's beloved children. So remember, church, that you are a child of God and may you walk in the fullness of that identity and reality because who you are influences how you live. I want to give you three uh, just reflection questions. Um, where's sin running unchecked in your life? Is, is there a place where you, you, you sense the spirit bringing conviction, but you've been hesitant to open it up to repentance? You've been hesitant to tell a, a mentor or an accountability partner about it? Second question, is there a place of sin that you're rationalizing because it doesn't seem like a big deal? Maybe even this morning, it's thinking about bitterness or anger and how it's been rooted in your life. And finally, and proactively, how is God calling you to be a redemptive presence in your sphere of influence? Maybe it's Monday morning as you prepare to walk into an environment that feels toxic. Maybe it's waiting in your car for just a minute and saying, Jesus, I'm about to walk into what you know is a difficult place for me. Lord, help me not to be bitter. Help me not to slander my manager, but Lord, help me to be someone who lives out your grace and your compassion that might call that person to your truth. Maybe it's stepping into a difficult family moment this week in a situation that's hard and difficult and all your brokenness in those family moments seems to be brought back to the surface and maybe it's a moment of saying, Jesus, help me in this place to somehow be a redemptive presence, to draw people to your healing, Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for The truth of John's word, I thank you for his bluntness, um, for his boldness to say, we absolutely, if we're following you, Jesus, we absolutely are your children. And Father, I pray this morning for those, maybe there's, there's some that have a hard time really accepting that reality. Maybe there's some this morning that feel overwhelmed by guilt and shame and they can't accept the fact that if they've trusted you with their salvation, that they are in fact your children. So God, I pray where there is guilt and shame and and, and a sense of being held bondage by our past, Lord, free us from that today, that we can fully accept this reality that we are your children. 
God, I thank you for the truth that John brings, that you, Jesus, came to destroy the work of the enemy. And so, God, I pray for those places where it feels like the enemy is winning, in places where maybe there's a broken marriage that reconciliation doesn't seem possible. Father, maybe there's a situation at work that seems unredeemable. Maybe there's a place of wounding and brokenness in our own lives that feels so fresh and so difficult still that we have a hard time moving past it. I pray, Jesus, that we would be reminded that you destroy the work of the enemy. So, Father, where there is bondage to addiction, Lord, break it down, destroy it. Where there is unreconciliation, break it down, destroy it. Lord, where there are unholy things rooted in us, Jesus, break it down and destroy it. Lord, where we are unrepentant, where we are unsurrendered, Lord, break down our arrogance. Help us to surrender those things to you because you, Jesus, promise us victory. And where the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, you come that we might experience the fullness and the abundance of life. So Jesus, help us, grace us to trust you. And this week, Lord, as we step into hard moments, as we step into good moments, as we step into all the spheres of influence you've blessed us with, Lord, help us to live out a redemptive influence. Help us to, as Paul says, walk in the way of love, Jesus. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.